Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople, welcome to the podcast. Today, I am thrilled to talk about a topic that we have not covered on the show, which is how to close mega deals. So we're talking about deals that are in potentially the tens of millions of dollars. And I have a great guest to talk about that. His name is Jamal Reimer. Jamal, welcome to the show. Hey, Jeremy. Thanks for having me. Jamal's a great guest to talk about this because uh, he has exactly the right qualifications that you would expect for someone who talks about mega deals. He has spent over 12 years at Oracle. He's currently a strategic account manager, but has had a whole variety of roles there over time. In that 12 years, he's gotten exposure to many of those deals that are in the tens of millions and upward. He also has decided to share some of those things he's learned over time. And he's, uh, in addition to working at Oracle, he's the creator and founder of the Mega Deal Secrets Masterclass, which we'll learn a little bit more about at the end of the podcast. Before we get into that, though, I, I love to start talking books because I geek out on books. Jamal, I'll start by asking, what's your favorite sales book of all time and, and what did you learn from it? I would have to say it's Selling from the C-Suite. And it's just an excellent, excellent rundown of some research that was done about executive behavior, what they're really interested in. And it was about the time that I really started becoming interested in doing more complex selling, you know, getting away from the mid-tier and getting into the, the senior levels of my customer organization. So I, I really love that book. It, it's the first one that comes to mind. I think that book is an obvious segue into our topic. And it does make me wonder, just as a starting point, if you're making the transition from, you know, selling deals that are in the $100,000 to million range or even below that, and you want to transition into mega deals, what are some of the, the biggest things that you have to learn and, and do differently? There's a number of shifts that I had to go through. Some of them, I saw them while they were happening and others, I just kind of looked at them at hindsight. A lot of it is just mindset. The first time that my mindset was really challenged around how to do these really large deals was um, when I was a rookie, my first year at Oracle. There were a couple of people who were just absolutely smashing it. You know, they were senior reps. They'd been around a while. And where most of us were doing anywhere from half a million to a million and a half in revenue per year, right, throughout however many deals we were going to do, these guys were doing not only over a million, but one of them was doing over 10 million, you know, pretty much 10x what the typical rep was doing. I just couldn't get my, my head around it. You know, I was like, there it is, that number's there. And she won, you know, rep of the year, but I just hadn't, how do you, how do you even conceive of something like that? Is it some kind of pixie dust that she just puts on her customers and they just say yes to these, you know, numbers with zeros and zeros and zeros behind them. So I would say the first thing is, is really a mindset. Is it kind of like a belief that this number is, is not a big deal? There's a couple of types of mindset, I think. One is around belief and the scenario that you just put out there is around belief. Yeah, it's just one more zero, right? Or it's just two more zeros and it's just a number. That's plenty of a barrier right there if you've never done it. But the other mindset is how do you shift away from whatever world you're in and you kind of move into this other world? And the analogy that I like to use the most is you're in one mindset when you go fishing. You know, you use a fishing rod and you catch a fish. You're in a very different mindset when you go whale hunting, right? You know, the indigenous peoples in the northern climes, they band together 
as a tribe, as a group, you know, as a hunting party. And they go out and they bring home, you know, one whale that feeds the family for an entire year. Very different mindset. You know, you can't catch a whale with a fishing pole. I'm reading a, a subtext in your story that if you're catching a trout, you go out there, army of one. And if you're catching a whale, it's not an army of one kind of a thing, right? It's, it is a team sale. Is that part of the subtext of what you're getting at? Oh, definitely. When you're an individual sales rep selling deals at, you know, 50K, 100K, 500K, in my experience, it was typically me and my pre-sales engineer, my solutions engineer. And we'd ride out into the field together and go get these deals done. But then when you get to the anything over a million and the five and above, then you need some more players. You know, you need other specialists and definitely the higher you go, you start to work with executives, both your own and the customer executives. On the executive alignment, who are the types of executives that you pull in? I guess it's going to depend on the nature of, of the deal. Definitely. One thing that I like to do is you, you probably know the old saying, it's always good to build a well before you need it. I'd like to build relationships with people on my own team, people in, uh, in my own management chain, people above or on the side of my own man. You know, I'm in one business unit at a really big portfolio company. So I try to get to know and add value to people who I would also love to work with in sales cycles. So when you say, you know, what kind of executives do I like to work with? Well, I like to work with everybody in my own management chain and then all the way up to the senior management of my business unit. I work with different people, you know, as you said, with different parts of the sales cycle or different components. Sometimes it's an expert who's needed, right? That's the, the best voice to put in front of the customer. And other times it's simply the person that can deploy the most resources to make the customer feel reassured that whatever happens, they're going to be in good hands. It's all very choreographed, you know, you bring one in and then they've done their bit and, and then they finish and then you bring someone else in. Maybe you being the first person back again for an encore depends on the, on the story you're, you're weaving. A bit of a somber topic, but shortly before we uh, hopped on the phone here to record the podcast, Mark Hurd, who was the co-CEO of Oracle, passed away at quite a young age of 62. I would assume that he you know, would potentially have been one of those executives who gets involved in the mega deals. Is that an accurate statement? Oh, it is. I've never worked personally with Mark on a deal, but I certainly know of deals that he has been part of. And he was um, tenacious in his knowledge of the account and in, in his demand on the rep or the account manager and in follow-up. I knew of one key account director in uh, the Netherlands who had worked with Mark and he just commented, you know, you got to be careful for what you wish for because when Mark gets involved, he really sinks his teeth into a deal and he works with the executive on the other side of the table, but he also does a lot of background work with the rep themselves. So uh, certainly he, he was involved in many of the very biggest deals. I do want to get back to the shifts, but I have a couple of other things I want to ask you about that, that make me curious. One of them, though, is actually your vocal tone, that I would characterize your vocal tone as this calm confidence for reps and leaders who are learning to speak that way. Is that, was that an intentional thing for you? Or did it just sort of happen as you, as you were doing more deals and meeting with more executives? Because you have an executive presence about your voice. The, the longer we do anything, the more comfortable we become. 
And when we become comfortable, I think there's a correlation with comfort and confidence. I guess it has grown over time. I guess I'm generally a calm person, but some of it's also just modeling. The more I've had the opportunity to be around senior executives, they tend to, in general, be relatively calm people. They're direct. There's not a lot of fluff in what they say. You start to, you know, get in the same lane, so to speak. The other thing I'm curious about before we get back into some of the other shifts, it has to do with, you know, compensation, in particular compensation when you're, you know, you're selling these gigantic deals. You know, in, in traditional SaaS sales, you're doing a high enough volume that you can set annual and quarterly quotas and, and sort of all of that makes sense. But if you get hired into a place where they're doing multi-million dollar deals that are very intermittent and you might not do a deal for months, quarters, you know, year, what have you, like, how do you actually think about compensating new hires into the businesses that you're involved in? The more I spend time doing this, the more I can see there is a, there's an inflection point in the maturity of any company. Let's just take SaaS players, right? You start with the founder, you know, the CEO is the salesperson and they do a few deals and then they get to the point where they can't keep selling and run the rest of the company. So then they go hire their first salesperson. And then there's a small group and that typically starts with inside sales and then graduates to field sales. And along the way, there's this point at which deals just start to, there's a dissatisfaction with the deal size. And then it starts to grow and get a little bit bigger. The question of compensation comes in when you're not able to have that volume to be able to have a predictable, okay, well, we've got 10 reps, 70% of them do at least X. So within 10% above or below that number, that's where we're going to set our number. When you don't have that anymore and when you start to get into the wider range of deal size, it gets a little bit difficult. And I've been in organizations where they say, year in and year out, we're going to keep it at this amount plus X percent for the next three years. You know, very, very consistent. And I've been in other organizations where they're like, okay, we have a team. And this year I can, you know, I as the sales leader now, I can see that this big, big, big opportunity could happen. And there's no other big opportunities. They're all kind of normal. So I'm going to overweight the number to the person that has the biggest opportunity. That adds an awful lot of risk to that one rep. But, you know, there's just different ways to deal with it. And there's trade-offs to all of them. I coach reps and a lot of the reps say, Jamal, I'd love to do bigger deals, but to do bigger deals, I've got to let them cook a little bit longer. And my management just wants me to close everything I can on a quarterly basis. And so I think that there would be some room collectively for us to learn about when to get your reps to close stuff, to have consistent run rate revenue every quarter, and when to let them run, just to let that deal go a little bit longer. Because who knows, it could be 30% bigger, 50, 200, 500% bigger. If you just didn't have the knee-jerk reaction to close as soon as you saw a buying sign. With that extra time, what are some of the things that reps who are successful in closing those larger deals do with that time? One of the things that you do is you've got enough room to do a proper investigation. Could be a POC, could be a pilot, could be an extended demo, an exercise with live data, dummy data, whatever. But the larger the potential deal size 
the more the customer is going to want to have proof that it's going to work, right? Not just a customer story that it worked for someone else, but proof that it's going to work in their environment or culture or, you know, their scenario. Oftentimes, if you don't have time to do that kind of a investigation that's going to give them a lot of confidence, then the only alternative is to start small or do nothing. And if they start small, then it's your classic land and expand opportunity. And oftentimes they, they never expand, right? They just kind of land and that's about it. But if you're trying to get them over the hump to some, you know, a deal of size the first time around, you need enough time to give them the ability to really kick the tires and see, you know, is this thing going to work for us? I'd love that you landed on this pilot and POC concept. If you do advocate that approach, I know a lot of sales managers, sales leaders want to demand that those are paid trials or paid POCs. I'd love to hear your experience and opinion on whether that's necessary or not. The rationale for getting the customer to pay, sometimes the rationale makes sense, sometimes it doesn't. But a common one is, well, they should put some skin in the game. It's valid. It's, it's a valid rationale. The way that I like to describe it to the customer is, you know, we talk about whatever value proposition there is. We talk about that that's been realized by other customers. And then I suggest that we co-craft some kind of an investigation that would be no cost or low cost. And the idea is that I just want them to do it. And I'm so confident in what that I have that I'm not really worried. You know, I might have to put more skin in the game than they do. Because if they see the value that we see and we can quantify and prove that value, then they're probably going to really want to work with us in a bigger way. It's a valid approach to get the customer to pay. But I think they will accept faster, especially if it's like a, like a new offering, right? And not in a mature market like CRM or, or EPM or these mature areas. If it's something newish, there isn't a lot of bench to benchmark against. So if they can do their own POC, they're going to say, see, this thing actually worked in, in a microcosm. It's okay to start by doing an entire business unit or across the enterprise or what have you, because we'll know it'll work. We just have to scale it. One thing that salespeople often forget on the skin in the game part of the POC is if they think about a, a large enterprise, right? Whoever is your champion is most likely an executive and they are putting their professional reputation at risk. So they have skin in the game in that way. Then there's also the expense that they are putting through, right? The legal expense to get contracts through the teams that they are probably assigning to be dedicated full-time to the pilot and so on. So what they are actually spending on the POC probably dramatically exceeds whatever amount that they might pay the vendor. I guess the total cost of ownership of a pilot is not zero, even if they don't put any dollars into your pocket. Obviously, in so many markets now, there's just hyper-competition do you find when you get to these mega deals, the competition is as intense? What does the competition look like in, in those situations? It's incredibly fierce. There are fewer players, but this is not a skirmish of a small band of warriors, right? This is large army versus large army with firepower on both sides and artillery and the Air Force on both. You know, it's a, it's a full scale war. And even in relationships where I've had, you know, like multiple mega deals, it's not a matter of just the customer is going to renew with you after the first X years contract, right? Every single renewal period is a whole nother competition, either with the same or a different major competitor. I would think there would be so much stickiness and switching cost friction that the partner, the customer of yours would not 
come back and try to aggressively negotiate each year. But but you're saying that that does happen. I've experienced both. You know, I've experienced customers that go two or three cycles of two to three years each with only renegotiating the terms. And I've had others which will do a market survey at least once every six years just to, you know, double check what else is in the market, what technology has emerged since the last two cycles, you know, of renewals, et cetera. And then I've had one where two cycles in a row, they went out to the market to look at various vendors. So there is a spectrum depending on the customer and what part of the cycle your industry is in, right? Be it CRM or ERP or what have you, you may be in a cycle of a lot of innovation. I mean, I think everybody's getting hit with lots of innovation right now. And the larger portfolio companies, the IBMs, the SAPs, the Oracles of the world are being inundated with upstarts of of various sizes and levels of maturity. And we're all trying to find our place in the world, either to combat them head to head or to start to kind of be frenemies or some kind, you know, where you have like an app exchange and you can work with them. So the whole concept of competition and cooperation is they're merging and finding new paths with the services arms of the companies you mentioned, IBM, SAP, Oracle, you know, Microsoft, the services arms are not just selling their own products, right? They, they're going to mix and match to whatever the needs of the customer are. And that frenemy gets very complex. Absolutely. It's a large and growing landscape out there. But I did want to close out on, on kind of any other critical shifts that you need to make to go from a standard sales professional to one who's doing mega deals. So besides the mindset shifts that we talked about and some of the other shifts as well, is there anything we didn't, some major stones we have left unturned? I think one of the biggest shifts that I had to go through was uh, I had to move away from the old way of selling, move to a new way of selling. The old way of selling was, you know, cold outreach with the goal of getting a discovery meeting with a mid-level player. And then either, you know, after the discovery call or meeting, setting up for a demo and then doing a demo. And then there's nothing sticky after that. And so it was just like, desperately following up to see, you know, do we have any next steps? Just praying, right? So outreach, discovery, demo, pray. That was the old way. And I got a few deals done miraculously, but that was never going to cut it with really large deals. And then shifting into creating connections with very senior people very quickly and discussing what I call a a C-level insight, right? We're moving away from this whole world of, hey, Let's have a coffee and, you know, tell me what keeps you up at night and what are your biggest pains right now? All this kind of discovery-based conversation. And now we're really moving into insights, right? What is it that a customer can learn from you? Because if they're going to spend any time with you at all, they want to get something out of that conversation, not just a bunch of questions so that, you know, the customer can tell them how to sell to them. So getting into the world of insights, something really deep and profound, either about their industry or about some part of their company that might be unbeknownst to them, you know, some little small detail that you might know as a vendor, that's a huge shift to move away from asking, hey, how can I sell to you into, hey, here's something that you probably don't even realize about your own company, let alone the industry. Let us come in and talk with you about this because, you know, whether you buy something from us or not, you're going to be able to take some action off of what we share. How important is it to do a consulting project before you show up into a meeting with 
one of those very high-level executives, general manager, CXO of of a large company going in and figuring out like what are their priorities and where are the opportunities to create value. You hear people who are sales consultants say, hey, they're like that's a thing to do is to go and do those types of studies. Then you prepare that and you bring those very, very custom tailored insights to the C-level. Is that something you actually see or is that just something that people talk about almost as a vaporware idea? I think it's somewhere in the middle. You have to have something in place to be able to ask for that kind of engagement. I don't know of any consultant that can just go in and say, hey, you know, open your kimono and we'll go in and figure out what's wrong and tell you. (laughs) That just doesn't happen. Either you've already got some kind of business relationship with the customer or you already know something that would entice them to say, well, that sounds super intriguing. Can you come in and see if it's true exactly for us? Or can you spend some time explaining to us what you already know about us, given your experience or your knowledge. So you got to lead with something of value rather than offer, if you let me in, I will be able to generate something of value. And that's the insight. It doesn't have to be proven. It just has to be intriguing and possible. And if it was true, man, would it be valuable. I think the insight alone is probably the topic of another podcast, but I can't let you go without asking you for at least one tip on ways to connect with senior people effectively and efficiently. I go through non-traditional routes to find connections to people. So for example, when I worked at venture back companies, I would spend time with our funders, with our VCs or the board members, and I would just wring them dry for everybody that they knew who could be a potential customer of the company. And then I would have them introduce me and not only me, the CEO or the head of product or whoever to go have an informal meeting and basically to you know have an informal conversation introduced by a peer who was a somebody in the financial world, a, a VC or a private equity person. And a meeting like that is just so much more informal, so much more warm. It's like pre-established rapport. That's probably the best one that I have. I, I lean on that all the time. Where, wherever I can, I try not to go into an account cold. Yeah, it just speaks to the ever-present value of a trusted third-party referral in, in everything that you do. It is so much the key to success in sales. I find a lot of reps think that being efficient is sometimes cheating. They feel that they have to bang out 100 calls a day to earn their way into an account the cold way. <laughs> not just the old way, but the cold way. You know, getting an introduction in, it, it, I don't know, it, it almost feels like it's in some way cheating, which it's not. It's just being really smart and moving the needle very quickly, very far. I do want to give you a a little bit of time here to share how people can get in touch with you, you know, learn a little bit more about mega deals, but I guess also in particular, understand a little bit about what you're doing with the, uh, the mega deal secrets masterclass. Any listeners more than welcome to reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, The second way is I have a LinkedIn group called the sales tribe. Any enterprise seller is welcome to come on in and I'll let you in. And the third thing is, uh, you know, since I've been sharing podcasts like this one and a couple of speaking engagements, I've had a lot of individual reps and teams come to me asking for advice about how to how to position themselves to do really large deals. So I started this this masterclass. And if you're interested in knowing more about it, you can just go to megadealsecrets.com and the whole story's there. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. 
Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.